This is The Guardian. Once again, people are dying as they try and cross the English Channel. This week's tragedy came as Rishi Sunak doubled down on plans to stop people coming to the UK using so-called small boats. It is not just our asylum system that needs fundamental reform. Our laws need reform too. This latest development comes in the midst of four days of train strikes and a walkout by nurses, and the government still refusing to negotiate about pay. I could spend the next hour telling you why I believe very strongly that there are bully boy tactics being used. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister is leading a divided party, which seems ready to once again go into meltdown if he fails. And you wonder, how long can Rishi Sunak hold it all together? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the former Downing Street Chief of Staff and Conservative peer, Gavin Barwell, and the political strategist, Joe Tanner. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Today, we'll be talking about the Conservatives and the state they're in after 12 years of power. Who and what are the party about today? We'll begin by talking about how they respond to the two stories that are currently defining the news, the winter strike wave and the issue of so-called small boats. We'll then get into the big picture for the Conservatives, ideological divisions, the long slipstream of Brexit, and what the party is going to say to voters at the next election. Let's talk, first of all, about so-called small boats. Um, Rishi Sunak has said that one of his biggest priorities is somehow addressing the number of boats crossing the English Channel, which are bringing in people who claim asylum. Um, we recorded this on Wednesday when we heard the tragic news that a boat making the journey across the channel had capsized, causing multiple deaths. On Tuesday, the Prime Minister told the House of Commons about his plan to stop these journeys, announcing, among other steps, that anyone who came to the UK via a so-called illegal route would be detained and returned either to their home country or another safe country where asylum could be considered. This is what Rishi Sunak said in his statement. If you enter the UK illegally, you should not be able to remain here. Instead, instead, you will be detained and swiftly returned either to your home country or to a safe country where your asylum claim will be considered. And you will no longer be able to frustrate removal attempts with late or spurious claims or appeals. And once removed, you should have no right to re-entry, settlement or citizenship. I wanted to ask you both, first of all, about the fact that the government clearly sees this as a huge issue. As I understand it, loads of Tory MPs say this really preys on the minds of lots and lots of their constituents. I wonder where you think public opinion lies and whether this hardline approach that the government is taking sort of speaks for and to a majority of the public or whether things are more finely balanced and complicated? Why are they doing this? Uh, so I think, John, the opinion is divided in the country on this question as it is on many others. But there are certainly, if you look at the polls, a significant minority of the electorate are very concerned about the perception that we don't have control over who's coming into the country. So uh, certainly that percentage would be much higher among those who are either saying they would vote or would consider voting Conservative. So the Prime Minister is definitely feeling under political pressure to do something about this. I think I would make two points. The, the first is the tragic news that we've heard 
today should remind us all that we're talking about people who are coming here to try and build a better lives for themselves and their families. And whilst we as a country have every right to insist that there's got to be some control over this process and people can't come here illegally, we shouldn't lose sight of who these people are as human beings. And the second thing, and I think this is a problem the government's going to grapple with on this issue, is that I think it's just impossible to completely stop this. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and do something about it. But we live in a globalised world where it's much easier for people to move around. Climate change is going to drive further population movements over time. And one of the challenges we have is that a lot of those people want to come to the UK because they speak English. So it's easier for them to integrate into a society like ours than, you know, than some other European countries whose language they might not speak. It feels like immigration or illegal migration or whatever you want to call it, asylum seekers sort of clogging up the system, causing a a sort of diversion of of resources is a sort of helpful narrative when the government haven't cracked some of the problems that need to be cracked. And, And I think, you know, the irony that some of the MPs that are most upset about things like small boats are actually nowhere near where these people come in. They're nowhere, they're, they haven't got constituencies anywhere near. It's just a kind of, it seems to be a convenient narrative for a bunch of the right of the Tory party to kind of, to hone in on. And I Does think, that account for its timing as well as you understand it then? That it's no coincidence that, that in a week where, you know, this commonplace idea that Britain isn't working reaches a peak because of the strikes, Rishi Sunak appears as if from nowhere and makes this announcement. You'd see the two things as being connected. I think there is an element of it. I think also there is a there's an inevitability that that something has to be done. I mean, I remember saying ages ago, I don't understand how we haven't with the sort of forces that we've got. I haven't understood why we we've not managed to crack the small boats kind of network and we haven't gone after the people that are behind this. And I'm sure it's something to do with how complicated the border is, how complicated the waters are, how much it all costs. But I can't believe that sorting that out is not cheaper than the way we're handling it at the moment, because it seems to be bonkers that people arrive and then are left in this sort of terrible accommodations or, you know, others are are moved into hotels or whatever. The, The whole way it's working without dealing with it at source seems to be much more expensive. But yeah, to me, the timing stinks a bit. And also, uh, it is a problem that I think the public do care about. And I think the idea that the system is just relatively inhumane, but also, to some extent, out of control, I think it is something that bothers people, yes. Being honest, Gavin, does it feel as if there's any realistic prospect of uh, the asylum system working more efficiently in the backlog of around about 143,000 people coming down? doesn't feel like that, does it? From the government's perspective, it seems like they just can't get a grip on this and it's sort of intractable. So that's the bit that should be easiest to solve, right? If you get proper resourcing into the Home Office, you should be able to get in control of the case numbers. And we actually, we should be honest about it, like during the pandemic, we had a reduction in the numbers. So that was an opportunity potentially to try and make some progress on this backlog that was missed. I think the harder issues are the ones that Joe was just referring to in terms of actually how do you get effective intelligence-led policing operations that crack the gangs that are doing this. Um, and you, you're never, as I said, going to remove... The desire of people to try and come here. Now, I, I don't, I don't agree with what you said. I don't think this helps the government politically. They're, they're very worried about Farage. You know, they fought the whole Brexit thing on the sense of taking back control. And if people are seeing visible pictures that we're not in control, that's really bad for them. What I think they will do, I think both sides of the argument will use these tragic fatalities to reinforce their case. So, the you know, Labour and others will say this shows that you've got to provide a legal safe route to stop this happening. And the government will say, 
you know, we've got to clamp down on this to stop the gangs doing what they're doing because the gangs are putting people's lives at risk. Right, let's talk about the weeks or months or seasons or years of the biggest story, the winter strike wave. Now, some of the loudest noise we've heard this week has come from the RMT leader and previous Politics Weekly UK guest, Mick Lynch. The front page of The Sun, for what it's worth, on Wednesday said, you've lost it, Lynch. A lot is being made of support for the strikes among RMT members supposedly dipping. 91% of RMT members voted in favour of the strike mandate in October, whereas 63.6% of the RMT members who voted backed rejecting the latest offer from Network Rail. A lot has been made of those two figures. You can see plainly that the government might quite relish um, a fight with the RMT, and, and maybe it thinks that over time it'll win. But the, the nurses' strike, it seems to me, is a much trickier issue for the government. From any vantage point, its position right now probably looks unreasonable. As we all know, the Royal College of Nursing said it would call off the strikes if the government would just talk, not m make any specified moves, just talk about pay. But that offer was turned down. This is the Royal College of Nursing's General Secretary, Pat Cullen, on BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour. I'm approaching Thursday with a very, very heavy heart a nurse of 43 years, and I never thought, and I would get quite emotional about it, never thought that I would lead my wonderful profession onto picket lines, standing out in the cold, um, and not only standing um, out in the cold, but metaphorically being placed in the cold by this government. Gavin, you've been in government. Would you be digging in like this as far as the nurses were concerned if you were back in Downing Street? Uh, no, um, because I don't think they're ultimately going to win. But I understand why they're in a difficult position. Right, you've got this whole you've got this whole kind of policy infrastructure that's been set up of having these independent pay review bodies that come up with an answer, and the moment the government moves away from them and overrules their decision, you know you're you're unpicking the whole thing, not just in relation to the nurses, but all of the other pay settlements potentially as well. So I entirely understand why ministers are very nervous about that, but I don't think uh, this line that we can't even talk about pay because we've agreed to go with the pay review body and that's it. I don't think that's going to hold. If you look at public opinion, ultimately politicians and unions are going to be watching the polls really closely through these strikes to see whose side the public are on. And the evidence I've seen so far suggests a much higher level of support for the nurses among the public, maybe not unsurprisingly post-pandemic, to, to the RMT. Joe, do, do you feel like it's a sort of a somewhat odd position for the government to be taking, to be digging in like this as far as the nurses are concerned? I was quite surprised when Pat Cullen said what she said and I sort of thought, I'll wait 24 hours and maybe the government will say, all right, at least superficially we'll talk about pay. And they didn't. And I think I think this is a PR battle that the government are not going to win. And, and I think what's really interesting is that when you compare it to what's happening with the RMT, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff now. There's a lot about Mick Lynch's sort of pay and his benefits and his, him individually. And it becomes that he's like the bogeyman. And I think it's a completely different position with the Royal College of Nursing. And I think the, I did find myself feeling quite frustrated when I was listening to to Pat talk because I kept thinking, but I don't understand why why Steve Barclay didn't try harder. I get the line, but I just don't think it works. 
I think we, there's that element of we're in very extraordinary times. You know, it's it's not as if you're talking about a normal year, a normal run of the the mill kind of, oh, it's pay review time, etc. This is what's being considered. What What's different this time is that everyone else is feeling the pain in some way. But how far do you think that, that sympathy either does or will extend? So, all right, we, we can we, we achieve some measure of agreement here that the government's on a very sticky wicket as far as nurses are concerned. I would imagine that probably applies to ambulance crews and people who work in ancillary positions in hospitals as well. Do you think that might apply to border staff who are also about to take action? And then in January, you've got teachers, right? Also, as far as railway workers are concerned, it's sort of evenly balanced, you know. That great wave of hostility towards McLynch that the government is obviously trying to sort of kick up hasn't really materialised yet. Yeah, the starting point, even if you're the government and you're going to have to resist some of these bids for pay awards has got to be a degree of empathy with why people are feeling the need to press for a high offer, right? Um, I think in ter- your, your question to me was in terms of public opinion, where's that going to go? I think it is very yeah. valuable profession yeah. by profession, right? And nurses right at the top. Um, train drivers, as you say, it's more evenly divided. And I think if people understood a little bit more just how old-fashioned some of those contracts in the rail industry are, that the RMT have been resisting changing for a long period of time, then they would have even less sympathy. And I think the government's got a strong case there, which is, look, we can look at a bigger pay increase, but there's got to be some stuff in return for that in terms of productivity that that allows us to improve the way we run the railway. So I think Mark Harper is in a stronger position, both actually in in absolute terms intellectually, but also in terms of public opinion, than Steve is in, in ter- Steve Barclay's in, in terms of the nurses. There's something that, that I think is very interesting here about why the idea that the government can and should have nothing to do with pay and people's working conditions doesn't quite sound as convincing as it might have done four or five years ago. And I have a theory that's chiefly to do with the pandemic, actually. That because of the furlough scheme and the government very visibly stepping in to pay a lot of people's wages, to get stuck into the absolute sort of basics of their working lives, the idea that the government can say, well, this has got nothing to do with us, you'll have to speak to your employer in quote marks, even in the case of the NHS, just doesn't carry much water anymore, particularly because Mr. Furlough scheme was Rishi Sunak. So the very person who was responsible for that level of government interventionism can't credibly now say nothing to do with us, Gov. And that's that's really the tension that the government is caught on. What do you think of that theory, Joe? Well, I mean, th- th- let's face it, you know, they've, they've boxed themselves in into a very difficult position because they keep talking about the cost of living crisis and how you know it's extraordinary times and it's all because of ukraine and and russia's um russia's invasion etc so they've tried to kind of paint it as extraordinary circumstances which covid was extraordinary circumstances again so the degree the, the sense of well hang on a minute have we just all got to put up with this or or are you going to do something then to help is there is a parallel that you can kind of look at because no one's taking responsibility for what's happened they're saying that it's all because of external forces that we are where we are rather than the result of any action or lack of action by the government to to the point that we've got to i wonder looking ahead because there's going to be more of this you know this conceivably could go on sort of indefinitely really what's going to happen i mean is the government going to carry on sitting there saying well there's nothing we can do about this And uh, and and trying to convince us they can somehow legislate their way out of it, which as we as we all know will have no effect on the short term. That's not a that's not a matter for now. No, I think the government's going to have to compromise. The, the danger is once you offer someone, you know, you, 
other people then use that as the yardstick. That's the difficulty they've got. But they're going to have to compromise because the impression of the country being in chaos and sort of winter of discontent is not good for them politically. They've also, John, I mean, let's just focus on the NHS for a second. Right? They've got a huge job to do to get back in control of the backlogs. And one of the biggest challenges facing the NHS is workforce. So if you've got a demoralised workforce and you've got people losing, leaving the profession, that's not helping the government deal with its issues there. So ultimately, there are going to be compromises here. We all know that. And it's the kind of the choreography of how you get from where we are today to those compromises. What time frame do you both imagine that the, 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 the compromise instinct might kick in over eventually? I mean, you know, what are we looking at? Spring? February? Immediately after Christmas? What does it feel like? I think it partly de depends on the media mood and how much it turns on the government because if, you know, inevitably in the winter people die and and you will have, we've already got strep A and other things knocking around that are also exercising the media quite rightly. There's obviously concern about those things. So you have, a, you have as Gavin said, the backlog, but then you also have some significant individual incidents and suddenly that pressure really mounts. So the compromise would to me, most likely feel that you go into one-off payment territories because then to go back to our earlier point about both the issue of furlough and the issue of what's happened in Ukraine and the energy price stuff, you start to make it look like an extraordinary year so you do something as a one-off rather than set a precedent to go against that pay review body. And how seriously, Gavin, do you take this very, very loud talk about legislative crackdowns and the idea that you will just pass laws to make this go away? Which, of course, it won't in the short term, as I said a moment ago. No. So, I mean, that's not, it's not a solution to the problems right now in terms of this pay round. Um, I think the government will want to look at that issue longer term. And actually, look, I think it's a reasonable debate to have. We, we already have certain professions where people can't strike. And I, I don't have a problem with, uh, with Parliament having a proper discussion about where is the right to strike. Our starting point should be the vast majority of people should ultimately have the right to withdraw their labour. But are there certain core public services... Um, beyond, say, the police where we have that at the moment or the armed forces where you where you think it's reasonable to do that or to at least place some slightly higher thresholds. Um, anyway, let's pause here for a minute on that cheery thought. And when we come back, we'll be looking at the fundamental state of the Conservative Party and conservatism. After 12 years of power, you wonder, where does their political centre of gravity now lie? Welcome back. The fact that the Conservatives have had three leaders in three months doesn't really point to a mood of peace and tranquility. And after... <laughs> You're allowed to have a sort of mirthless and somewhat dry laugh in response to that point. And after Liz Truss's short-lived and chaotic premiership, questions have not unreasonably been asked about whether after 12 years in power the Conservative Party might be ungovernable. It's now around consistently 20 points behind Labour in the opinion poll, so it's perhaps no surprise that many Conservative MPs are announcing that they won't stand at the next election. There is something of a Conservative brain drain at the moment. Dehenna Davison, the MP for Bishop Auckland, who's I think is younger than 30, she's announced that she's had enough and is going. Um, William Ragg, the MP for Hazel Grove. Sajid Javid, MP for Bromsgrove, former um, Health Secretary. Briefly the Chancellor, I can never remember. They go through jobs like a dose of salt. He was briefly the Chancellor. He's probably done everything. He's one of those. Matt Hancock, even. Anyway, they're all off. Some of the people who are off, it's very noticeable, um, 
are, are the representatives of so-called red wall seats. You know, these are people representing seats that turned blue for the first time ever in 2019. So I wonder what what's going on here. I mean, they sort of know that defeat is looming and, and they want to try something else. It's as simple as that going. Yeah, I think they fall into two categories. Um, some of the, some, you've got some who are really, really quite young and you really wouldn't expect to be going. And I think they've probably concluded the writings on the wall. And then you've got a few, a couple of those you, you mentioned, you know, people in their sort of my age, sort of early 50s, who probably conclude they're not going to get a go at senior ministerial office again. And, uh, you know, at an age where they want to try something else in their career rather than hanging around in Parliament. But all of it speaks to fundamentally a morale issue that most Conservative MPs, if you talk to them privately, don't think they're going to win next time. Joe, have you been at all struck by the number of, of, of MPs who have announced that they're standing down? It's a bit of a deluge it's turning into. I don't think this is half of it, really. I mean, I think there's a lot more. The, the issue is, remember, this only started because there was an artificial deadline that was set by the Tory party. So the the reality is that there have been many, and many that I've spoken to over the last couple of years who have been thinking about, really, the, the Brexit stuff kind of did for quite a lot of people. A lot of people just got sick of it. Then you get the people who, who have sort of stuck it out, but perhaps wanted to see Brexit get done. In their view, Brexit is as good as done or, or as near to it as possible. There are others who feel that Brexit's not actually done enough. Uh, and so therefore, they might want to stick around, whereas they might have actually retired, they might have given up, but they're actually, they're hanging out a bit longer to make their decision because they're not sure if they want to go because they think there might still be the wrong kind of Brexit delivered. And then, you know, let's face it, I think we fail to have sympathy for MPs sometimes. And I know it can be hard for people to want to have sympathy for MPs, but, you know, the bunch that got elected in 2019 turned up and within weeks were in a national lockdown. They had an absolutely hideous time trying to understand how to do a job that is quite frankly very unusual and where there's no manual on how to do it. Um, it was a new government with new people in, so the systems to actually look after those people properly were not established. And I think, actually, it hasn't been what they expected it to be. And the, the, the future doesn't look particularly optimistic. Gavin is nodding. Obviously, you're already living the post-parliamentary dream. And, uh, on the, on, on the <laughs> look face how good of it, he looks on nice. it as well. He's loving exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Now, I, I wanted to, to go into this question of the sort of essential centre of gravity of conservatism right now. Um, Gavin, you may agree with this. Our other uh, Politics Weekly UK Conservative regular, David Gork, I would imagine, does as well. Something has happened to conservatism and the right of politics, um, triggered by Brexit, most of all, it seems to me. I think the sort of centre of gravity of, con of the Conservative Party and the, the Conservative family, I sort of include in this the, the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and so on, has moved very, very markedly to the right. And its tone of voice right now can be rather unhinged and manic. Um, it's constantly sort of sniffing betrayal and uh, it seems to be very sort of stubborn and potentially hostile to an ever sort of shifting range of targets. Um, and even under Mrs Thatcher, when you would imagine, you know, you would think of, cons of conservatism as being very ideologically motivated. Conservatism wasn't really like that. It feels obsessive and peculiar now. Um, and I wonder what that means for its future really i mean do you buy that that portrayal of conservatism the sort of populist farageism has eaten into a lot of the conservative soul really and it's left it somewhere quite unprecedented so yes and no i mean i think it's a little bit more complicated than that I mean, the main thing i would say to your listeners is the conservative party doesn't know what it's for anymore right it's it's electoral coalition has changed quite significantly from the coalition that supported margaret thatcher 
And some Conservative MPs, and you saw that a little bit with the Liz Trust thing, want to espouse a policy platform very similar to the old Thatcherite credo. And others are much more in that kind of populist Farage's space, as you said. So first of all, there's a kind of row going on within the party. But then I think the other thing I would say to you is like economically, if you take the Johnson government anyway, which is the last long period of government we can look at, economically, the Johnson government is quite left wing, just high taxing, spending a lot of money on public services. Um, so I don't think you can say it's gone right on everything. But what I, where I would agree with you is that I think if I compare politics today to when I got involved as a nerdy teenager in the 1980s, politics then was mainly about economics. And today it's more about issues of culture and identity. You know, whether you're talking about Brexit or whether you're talking about Scottish independence or trans rights or wherever you want to look at these or, or the migration and asylum issues we were talking about earlier and earlier on in the conversation. These are questions about kind of cultural and identity questions. And on those things, then I think the Conservative Party has become much more right populist. Yes. So I would give you a kind of nuanced answer. OK, but nonetheless, to boil that down to a simple question, where does that leave people like you? I mean, are you interested in involving yourself in conservative politics again? Or do you think, as you see it, because of, of its fixation on these cultural questions and the stances that it's taken, that it's sort of sailed away from you for a long time? I think it's, in a very, it's caught in a trap of its own making because it would be quite difficult for it to reverse and, and go back to what it was before because it would risk losing more voters than it gained, at least in the short term. I mean, let, me, let me give you a concrete example, John. Right, Somebody quite senior in the government a few weeks ago floated the idea of a Swiss-style relationship with the EU, i.e. Yes, yes, right, yes. Going back to some this. kind of Theresa May-like alignment with EU laws in certain areas to get rid of the trade barriers that have been damaging our economy. And a whole bunch of people went absolutely mental when that was floated in the papers. And if, if imagine for a moment that Sunak had actually adopted that idea, you know, people like me would have been happy and thought that was an outbreak of common sense. But a lot of the voters that feel like that probably wouldn't straight away go back to voting Conservative because their view of the Conservative Party has been quite tarnished over the last few years. Whereas Farage and co would have been up in arms. You'd probably have had a new kind of, you know, a, a big boost to the Reform Party. So short term, you might lose more voters from doing that than you would gain. And that, I think, is the trap. Because I, mean, if you, I don't want to go on about this too long, but if you take Brexit as the example, if you look at public opinion right now, like 56% of people think we made the wrong decision, 32% think we got it right. And nobody in British politics wants to talk about that. Not just the Conservative Party doesn't want to acknowledge that. Keir Starmer doesn't want to talk about that either, right? So it's but that... Even the Lib Dems don't want to talk about right, it. No, no one no. wants to talk about it, right? So, so it, it's difficult, I think. Ultimately, it's going to have to learn lessons if it loses the next election. It's going to have to understand what went wrong and why. And that will be quite a contested debate, I suspect. I mean, arguably, Joe, or clearly, in my opinion, we're already starting to see the sort of electoral consequences of where the Conservative Party's gone in the sense that it does seem to be losing large chunks of the suburbs, affluent parts of the south of England. People there, the kind of people who would have probably voted Conservative without thinking 10 or 15 years ago, in my experience, don't really like the sort of intolerant, shrill, Brexit-y voice they hear from a sort of critical swathe of the, of the Conservative Party now. And as Gavin says, for the time being, there's no obvious way away from that. I think it's really complicated. I think there is a... Firstly, there's been a breakdown in party unity and party discipline for a I mean, long time. Big, and I think that actually started with the referendum. 
that started back when everyone could have an opinion and really no one's put their opinions back in a box for a long time which hasn't helped which means you've got all wings of the party you've got it's always been a broad church right it's always been the conservative party was lots of different views but you know you kept a lid on it and you you voted the right way you did this you did that you were a bit right you're a bit left you're a bit centrist and it worked and it hasn't worked since brexit but i think there's also the issues around the fact that we've forgotten the centre ground completely the conversation about the centre ground instead the parties went very left with Corbyn with Boris did they go right not necessarily on Brexit yes okay you could call that right if you want to but I think it was I still think that vote I think we're pretty much what is it we're 2022 so it's three years ago today pretty much that Boris was saying to people thank you for lending us your vote and now we're talking about the Tories losing those seats well they they weren't the Tory seats anyway those seats that are going were never Tory seats they were people that voted for Brexit like I just think it's such a this is such a kind of strangely inflated debate about seats that were never the Tories to keep they were they were people that voted for Brexit the idea then that there's going to be this mass wipeout it's only because they were not they were soft votes anyway they were purely on I think they were more on issues than they were on actually wanting to vote Conservative but then in which case isn't the the Conservative Party in trouble on two fronts in that sense that as you say it's not the natural order of things for Stoke-on-Trent and parts of Middlesbrough and wherever else to have Conservative MPs, and they may, they may well revert to type. At the same time as that sort of Brexity shrill voice that the Conservative Party has sounded has meant that it's got problems in Surrey and Oxfordshire. Well, those people and, feel left and, behind. A lot of the Sussex. people in those votes, those places, a lot of those voters felt that suddenly everyone was obsessed with these northern seats and they didn't care about the south. And you actually had very early on some of those MPs even starting to make noises and say, hang on a minute, levelling up, what does that mean for my area? All I hear is it's it's about these other constituencies. It doesn't mean anything for me. And that's where actually the Lib Dems will start to make those inroads. That's where the Lib Dems are looking. So I, I think I would say... Two things. The first is right. Joe alluded to this a second ago. In our system, with our first past the post electoral system, the truth is we have coalition government, but the coalitions are internal coalitions within parties. Right. So both of our big political parties are broad coalitions, and it, it takes huge political skill to put together something that forty forty five percent of the British public can agree with. Right. It's not easy, and it's not easy to hold that together. And so you're absolutely right, John that there is a sort of pincer movement that the Conservatives face at the next election, which is the seats they gained off Labour last time risk reverting back at the same time as the way they've repositioned themselves has left them vulnerable in some of what we would have thought of their kind of core safe seats in the South, right? But I just would disagree slightly with Joe on one issue, which is although it's definitely true that Brexit was the tipping point that turned the Stokes and the Middlesbroughs Conservative at the last election, I think there is something much more profound. There is an underlying realignment going on in politics, not just in the UK, but across most of the democratic world, where class has become a much less strong predictor of how people vote. So if you look at every election since every election since 1997, the correlation between working class community and having a Labour MP has eroded and eroded. So it disappeared completely in 2019. It's not just Brexit. 
that did that. It's an underlying thing that's been going on for quite a while. That brings us to two sort of final questions which, which are connected. One is, is there anything the Conservative Party can say to its wavering voters of various kinds that will make them feel better about voting Conservative at the next election? And then secondly, following on from that, whether it's necessarily true, whether it's a dead cert that the Conservatives are going to lose the next election. I don't I'm I'm not sure there is anything that anyone can say that the obvious thing will be you'll be worse off under him than you will under us. Um right you know, it's, it's the politics of warnings again, right? It, it yeah. will go, you know go back to are you going to take that risk, you know, this is these are the people that you know are are mates with the unions that that hold you to ransom. These are the people that you know will be less fiscally responsible than us. But fundamentally there's there's not a big pot of money that's available to spend their way out of this problem either, which means if you are an MP, what do you put on your leaflet? What do you say the Conservatives did for you? You know, did you get the hospital built in your area? Did you get more police officers? Have your ki- your kids got a better education? All of that stuff that you want to put on a leaflet is pretty hard to do. I'll answer your second question first because it's the easier one. Go on. Um, it's not impossible for them to win, but it's highly, highly unlikely. Let's be honest, John, if we took you and me back four years ago and tried to predict what was going to happen, we probably wouldn't have got it all right. So <laughs> politics is pretty unpredictable at the moment. You can you can construct scenarios, but I would say it's it's really difficult for them to win from here. Okay. On your on your first question, which is well, what could you do? What could you make it about? I mean, what what interested me is what he said on the first day when you went into Downing Street. He was explicit that Liz Trust had stuffed up and that part of his job was to repair the damage. And that happens rarely in politics that you have a go at someone from your own side. So he could go into the next election kind of being honest that the Conservative Party has made some mistakes, but he's turned it round, delivered growth and keep him there. That's his last glimmer of hope. And on that note, we shall leave it. We'll return to this, uh, all these huge questions time and again, I would imagine, in 2023. Thank you uh, both for joining us today, Joe and Gavin. Pleasure. Thanks. It was a cheery discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Like all discussions at the minute. exactly. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review. The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal has begun. If you had to pick between heating and eating, which would you choose? As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the UK's poverty line, more families than ever are facing a bleak Christmas. Join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line. All donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality to help support local grassroots projects which aim to support those who've been hit the hardest. If you'd like to donate, you can check out Politics Weekly UK's webpage. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian.